0: In February of 1896, Albert Jennings Fountain and his eight-year-old son Henry vanished off the face of the earth, never to be seen again. The pair had been traveling near the present-day White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico when disaster struck, an abandoned wagon and bloodstains the only clues alluding to their fate. To this day, no bodies have been discovered, and although suspects abound, ultimately no one would be held responsible. Who was Albert Jennings Fountain? What dark secrets did he uncover that made him a target for the unthinkable? And what the hell does all this have to do with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid? Strap in for this one as we delve into one of the greatest mysteries of the Old West. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza! To say that Albert Jennings Fountain led an interesting life would be an understatement. Both an outspoken critic of and apologist for the notorious Billy the Kid, a politician, a lawyer, a very opinionated journalist, and a combat veteran. He also just happens to be at the center of one of the greatest whodunnits in Old West history. Originally from Staten Island, Fountain headed west to California in the 1850s after graduating from Columbia, He worked as a journalist for a while in Sacramento and even traveled to Nicaragua covering William Walker's filibuster expedition. By 1860, Albert was admitted to the California State Bar, and when the war between the states broke out, he enlisted in the 1st California Infantry, quickly rising in rank from private to lieutenant. Although his unit did not reach New Mexico in time to expel the Confederates, Fountain was part of the occupying force stationed first out of El Paso and then Mesilla. Matter of fact, it was there in Mesilla where he met his future wife, Mariana, with whom he would have six children. Albert was involved in the relocation of the Mescalero Apache to the Bosque Redondo, and on several different occasions would command a detachment of volunteers, sustaining injuries in the process. After one especially bloody engagement with the Apache, Fountain spent the night under his dead horse, arrows sticking out of his arm and shoulder along with a bullet in the thigh. Following a convalescence at Fort Bliss, Albert was discharged and settled in with his new bride right there in El Paso. He began practicing law, helped to found a church, and played a key role in organizing the Republican Party of West Texas. This is in addition to also working as county surveyor and a collector of customs. Busy little beaver, this Albert. Now, Fountain's political beliefs did not do him any favors in Reconstruction, Texas, and neither did his former service in the Union Army. Nonetheless, he would be elected as a state senator. A talented orator who wasn't afraid to quote-unquote tell it like it is, there's no wonder that Albert gained quite a few enemies. And remember, this is in the 1800s, back when politicians sometimes resorted to shedding each other's blood over disagreements. Fountain would be challenged to several duels, at least one of which turned fatal when he shot and killed his political adversary Frank Williams. After achieving a leadership position in the Texas Senate, the Reconstruction movement began losing power, and as it diminished, so did Fountain's popularity. Ended up moving his family to Mesilla, New Mexico in 1873, where he would once again jump headfirst into politics, serving as the Speaker of the House in the New Mexico Territorial House of Representatives. In 1879, Fountain became the captain of a local militia, the Mesilla Scouts, continued to practice law, and founded a newspaper called the Messiah Independent. Back when Billy the Kid was still riding with Jesse Evans, Fountain was one of their most vocal critics, printing many an article condemning the bandits, and sticking his neck out while doing so. Ironically, once Billy the Kid was finally arrested and forced to stand trial for the murder of Sheriff Brady, it was Albert Fountain who was appointed as his attorney. Obviously, that didn't turn out too well for Billy, but there's no denying that by the latter part of the 19th century, Albert Jennings Fountain was not only one of the most prominent attorneys in New Mexico, but also one of the most well-known public figures. And by the mid-1890s, Albert was busy working as a special investigator and prosecutor for the New Mexico Stock Growers Association. It was a never-ending job back in those days keeping the theft in check, but Fountain seemed to be doing his part. Hell, he alone was responsible for sending over a dozen rustlers to prison, and by January of 1896, he secured an additional 32 indictments against 23 men accused of everything from stealing cattle to altering brands. Now, those indictments were drawn up at the courthouse in Lincoln, the same courthouse that Billy the Kid escaped from 15 years prior, and some of them were against members of law enforcement, men who also happened to be close allies with Fountain's most bitter political rival. And despite having his life threatened on more than one occasion, most recently right there in Lincoln, Albert pushed on, just he and his son in a wagon, as they made their way back home to Messiah. And just three days into their journey, on February 1st, 1896, the father and son met their mysterious fate. It was later determined that the wagon had veered off the trail, followed by additional horse tracks. All that was initially found was some dried blood and three empty brass cartridges, but ten miles further, the buckboard was located. Empty, of course, along with Fountain's briefcase. Those indictments it once held, much like Albert and Henry, were nowhere to be found. It doesn't take an Einstein to deduce that the pair came to a tragic end, right? And additional clues at the scene led investigators to suspect that the bodies had been wrapped up and tied on the backs of horses before getting hauled away. Then-New Mexico Governor William Thornton organized a committee that hired none other than the celebrated lawman Pat Garrett to come and search for Fountain and his boy and hopefully figure out what the hell had happened and who was responsible. Now, we will return to the Fountain Disappearance very shortly, but just real quick, this is part four in a series on Pat Garrett. In the previous three installments, we discussed Pat's origin story, his life before becoming the sheriff of Lincoln County, and his relationship with Billy the Kid. But what was Pat up to for the 15 years following the kid's death until he took over the investigation into Albert and his boy? Well, it turns out quite a bit. The dirt on Billy the Kid's grave was still fresh when dime novels started popping up on newsstands, portraying the outlaw as a near saint and Pat Garrett as a cowardly, monstrous ghoul. That being the case, Pat decided to write his own book, maybe answer a few of the lies and hopefully even make a profit while doing so. Sadly for him, this would not be the case. First of all, a good chunk of the book was penned by a ghost author named Ash Upson. Coincidentally, Ash lived with Billy Bonnie and his mother years prior in Silver City back when the kid was literally a kid. And later, Upson lived and worked in Roswell, where he continued his acquaintance with Billy. The two absolutely did know each other, so Ash was not simply an outsider looking in. That said, he did lay it on a mite too thick when it came to writing the story, a book whose ultimate title would be The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid, the noted desperado of the Southwest whose deeds of daring and blood made his name a terror in New Mexico, Arizona, and Northern Mexico. Now this so-called biography would turn out to be a big flop, selling relatively few copies during Pat's lifetime, and definitely not delivering much in the way of a steady paycheck. Of course, by then, Garrett was ready to move on to something a little more respectable. He decided not to run for a second term as sheriff, and instead supported his friend, Deputy John W. Poe, who would end up easily taking the election. It's not so much that Pat was tired of public service, he just had his eyes on a much bigger prize the New Mexico Territorial Council. Now, I didn't know exactly what this council was, but thanks to friend of the show, the Man of Enchantment, I learned that when New Mexico became a state in 1912, the council was replaced by a state senate. So I assumed that this job Garrett was after was basically the territorial equivalent of a senator. By the way, this is also around the time when a very interesting, yet relatively unknown, meeting occurred between Pat Garrett and Joseph Antrim, the brother of Billy the Kid. Rumor had it that Joseph was looking to avenge his sibling's death, and should it ever be Pat Garrett's misfortune to run into the young gambler, that badge of his wasn't going to offer up much protection. As one paper put it, Joseph, quote, hankered for the blood of Pat Garrett. Now, you may remember that Joseph and Billy were made orphans back in Silver City when their mama Catherine died of consumption. And although the townsfolk were kind enough to take the brothers in, they were ultimately separated. Billy, or Henry as he was known back in those days, went to live with the Truesdells while Joseph was placed in the care of Joe Dyer and his family, who incidentally operated a saloon called the Orleans Club. It's there where a teenage Joseph went to work, cleaning up, running errands, even tending bar on occasion, and of course, learning how to gamble, a vocation he would take to rather quickly and pursue for the rest of his life. And while Joseph was not a gunfighter per se, or even an outlaw like his brother, He was no stranger to violence. I mean, you can't just ply your trade in these dark saloons and dingy gambling halls there on the frontier and not learn a thing or two about staying alive. Hell, he was once even fined in Tombstone for fighting, but that's a different story. Now, whether or not Pat heard about these threats and purposely went looking for Joseph or whether they met by happenstance is unknown. But they did meet a rendezvous that took place in Albuquerque during the summer of 1882. And as the two men came face-to-face there in the Armijo Hotel, things got tense and quick. And I'm positive that none of the nervous spectators could have predicted what happened next. Nobody knows for certain what was said, but Pat and Joseph sat down together and began talking. And they continued to talk for the better part of two hours. When the conversation was over, the pair rose from their seats, shook hands, and went their separate ways. Joseph would later say that he had a, quote, better understanding of what had happened, end quote. Now, a lot of people don't even realize that the kid had a brother, much less one that lived all the way up to 1930. As far as anyone knows, he and Garrett never met again. Now, as far as Pat's political aspirations went with that territorial council, not everybody was supportive. Indeed, his detractors began coming out of the woodwork and bashing his name in the papers. One anonymous critic in particular, who signed his name with the letter X, made it abundantly clear that he did not think Pat was qualified for the position. And well, it didn't turn out so good for Mr. X. Garrett didn't much appreciate the negative press, and what's more, he was pretty sure he knew who the mystery man was, an old boy named William Roberts, who, rumor has it, was also talking shit about Garrett's wife, Apollinaria. Oh boy. Sure enough, one day Pat decides to pay Mr. Roberts a visit, pulling a Will Smith while doing so, pistol whipping the man and telling him to keep his wife's name out of his motherfucking mouth. Now, as you can probably imagine, after this, Pat would not be elected to the council, so he instead focused on his own ranching interest there in Lincoln County. At least he did until the spring of 1884, when he was once more called upon to help fight narrow It seems those ranchers up in the Texas Panhandle had gotten themselves in quite a bit of a pickle and needed Garrett's assistance. I did go over this recently in the episode I did on the big fight at Jenkins Saloon, but here's just a quick rundown to get you up to speed. According to newspapers at the time, between two to three hundred Texas panhandle cowboys, including them employed on the big ranches, all walked off the job shortly before the big spring roundup of 1883. They posted a list of demands, most of which were calling for a substantial raise in pay, and cautioned that anybody who ignored these stipulations would suffer the consequences. Oh, my. Ultimately, the whole thing didn't amount to a hill of beans. The striking cowhands soon ran out of money and were forced to return back to their employers. 10-gallon hats in hand. Them that would take them back, that is. Many of the out-of-work cowboys soon found themselves blacklisted and unable to find work within several hundred miles. So, some of them just took out their frustrations on their former bosses. Fences were cut, livestock was stolen, and pastures were burned. Hell, one group of -of out-of-work cowboys even took to calling themselves the Get Even Cattle Company. Now, how much of this rank thievery and mayhem truly occurred is somewhat contested. And the strike, as well as its aftermath, were largely blown out of proportion by the newspapers. That said, there was enough of a problem with stolen livestock for the big spreads, namely the LS, to bring in some outside help. And who better to call than the former sheriff of Lincoln County, New Mexico, himself, Pat Garrett. Still high off his reputation as being the man who killed Billy the Kid, Garrett signed on at $5,000 a year, over $150,000 in today's money, and formed what was called the Home Rangers. Now, I'm not certain how official this group was. Legend has it that Pat Garrett received a commission from then-Texas Governor John Ireland, but no such record has yet to be discovered. So whether or not they were officially official, or this was just sort of a wink and nod type of deal, either way, I'm pretty positive that Garrett and the L.S. Ranch had the full approval of the Texas government. With that in mind, I do think it's important to point out that these guys were not Texas Rangers despite using the name Ranger in their title. According to historian Leon Metz, many of the smaller ranchers and homesteaders, thinking that these developments were just a way for the big cattlemen to take over the entire country, started to sneeringly refer to Garrett's outfit as the L.S. Rangers. And they might have been onto to something, as the Rangers' ranks were packed with L.S. employees, some of whom coincidentally had been with Garrett over at Stinkin' Springs when he arrested Billy Bonney and Ruta and them others. Hell, Jim East, the sheriff of Oldham County, where Tuscosa is located, was also a former deputy of Garrett's, and he flat-out warned Pat about these new recruits, saying that he didn't want nothing to do with them. And I reckon Pat, to his credit, soon came to the same conclusion. Garrett quickly caught on to the fact that he was basically being paid to kill folks for the big outfit, as opposed to bringing them to trial, so he simply handed in his papers and the L.S. Rangers were disbanded. By January of 1885, Pat moved his family to Las Vegas and took up employment as the chief of the Southwest Livestock Detective Agency. Same sort of work he was supposed to have been doing up there in the panhandle. Now, at this point, Pat and Apollinaria already had three children, Ida, Dudley Poe, and Elizabeth, who was blind. Apparently, she was born with bad eyesight to begin with, and a doctor in Roswell assured Pat that he could fix her right up. Only thing is, whatever that sawbones did made it worse, and poor Elizabeth lost her sight entirely. The doctor wisely moved the hell out of town. Thankfully, Elizabeth Garrett does seem to have risen above her handicap. She would remember her father fondly in the years to come, and speak often of how he would urge patients, and advise her to think your way out, daughter, and keep your head clear above your heart. And years later, it was Elizabeth Garrett who would compose the New Mexico State song, Oh Fair New Mexico which remains the official song to this day. This is also roundabout when Garrett went into business with a rich Scotsman named Brandon Kirby, helping him to acquire land and cattle over in Lincoln County. Not only did Pat assist the aristocrat in buying several ranches, but he even became Kirby's first ranch manager. A very short-lived venture, as the two men just did not get along, and a very bad drought struck the Southwest, causing a sudden drop in cattle prices. With no money to be made in beef, Pat moved his family once again to Roswell and took to farming and breeding horses, and getting really into irrigation. He and a few others founded the Pecos Irrigation and Investment Company, and by 1889 had irrigated over 40,000 acres. They even built a town, Eddy, which would later change its name to Carlsbad. I hear that there's a cavern there. And not only did Pat help start this irrigation company, He also planted several hundred apple trees, went partners with a livery stable and a blacksmith shop, and even operated a dairy. And all of this is by the time he's 40 years old. Not too bad, in my opinion. You know, someone told me recently that they thought Garrett was a lifelong failure. But that doesn't really seem to be the case. The man was a hard worker. He was clearly ambitious. And from what I found while doing research, he did seem to invest much of his profits back into these different businesses. At least at first. Unfortunately, Pat would have certain vices, which we will be getting to soon enough, and these vices would be his ultimate undoing. Now, this irrigation business would go belly up, but it doesn't really appear to have been Pat's fault so much as just the price of doing business, much in the same way that a small mom-and-pop store can't keep up with Walmart. In 1890, the Garrett family welcomed another daughter, Anna, and Pat decided to run for sheriff of the newly minted Chavez County. He would lose, however, after his old friend, John W. Poe, turned against him and campaigned on the behalf of another man. Now, you got to remember, these two were very close at one point. Hell, Garrett even named his first son after Poe. So what the hell happened? Well, the same thing that has soured many a friendship in the past, money. Despite Pat being heavily involved in all those different businesses, he was also, nearly always, broke. And he was broke because he just could not stop gambling. He also had the very bad habit of not paying his friends back after he borrowed money from them, which appears to be what happened between him and Poe, ultimately ruining their relationship. Fed up with New Mexico altogether, Garrett uprooted his family and they all moved to the big city of Uvalde, Texas, where he committed himself wholly to gambling and racing horses. During this time frame, Pat traveled extensively all over Texas, New Mexico, and even as far away as New Orleans, racing ponies and his finances continued to plummet. In a letter to Apollinaria sent during one such adventure, Pat wrote, quote, Dear wife, I have been awake for two hours. Woke up at one o'clock and can't sleep and have got up and lit my pipe. What a terrible thing it is for a man to be so poor that he is compelled to stay away from his wife and children. I hope you are not as bothered as I am. It seems now as if I will not be able to leave here until the races are over. I still hope to make some money so I can pay what we owe. We'll be home by April and hope I will never have to go anywhere again without you were with me. Now, I don't know whether or not Pat won it big at the races on that occasion, but he certainly would go many, many places without his wife and family in the years to come, especially after February of 1896 when he was enlisted to track down the killer or killers of his old friend, Albert Jennings Fountain. That's right, we're getting back into Old Fountain now. According to another letter that Pat wrote his wife, he accepted the job as investigator at $150 per month with expenses paid, along with a promised $8,000 bonus if he's able to arrest and see to the conviction of Albert's murderers. Now, $8,000 in 1896 is almost $300,000 in today's money. And that $150 per month is like $5,400 when adjusted for inflation. So not only was Garrett motivated out of having a past friendship with Fountain, who, by the way, had supported his failed bid for the Territorial Council. But should Pat be successful, this would likely see he and his family out of their mountain financial problems. Also, Garrett suspected that another perk would be his eventual election as sheriff of Donna Anna County. By February 29th, just weeks after the disappearance, Pat was out scouring the countryside, seeing what he could turn up. And with him was Chavez County Sheriff Charles C. Perry who just a year prior had helped capture the noted outlaw Bill Cook up in Indian Territory. You may remember him from the series I did on Cherokee Bill. Now, Garrett and Perry spent a week out there in the desert, but came up empty-handed, so they returned to Las Cruces. Of course, by then, the names of several likely suspects were already being bandied about, with an old boy named Oliver Lee at the top of the list. Now, Oliver Milton Lee was a local rancher and deputy sheriff, who also just happened to be one of the men who Fountain had recently helped to indict on cattle rustling charges. Hell, word has it that he had even stolen stock from Susan McSween, the widow of Alexander McSween. Apparently, after her husband's death during the Battle of Lincoln, she went on to become one of the most successful female ranchers in all of New Mexico history. Lee was also a very close ally of Albert Bacon Fall, the guy I alluded to earlier as being Fountain's main political rival. And the word rival really doesn't do it justice. The two Alberts, Fall and Fountain, fucking hated each other. And boy, oh boy, is Albert Bacon Fall going to be popping up quite a bit more for the rest of this series. Now, back to the evidence against Lee, it wasn't just rumors. His boot prints matched those found at the scene of the abandoned wagon, and tracks from his horse were located nearby as well. Yet another set of footprints were said to have matched those of William McNew, also a deputy sheriff, and the husband of Oliver Lee's niece. And conveniently enough, McNew was also named in those fountain indictments. And then you had a guy named Jim Gilliand, Gilliland. Uh, I'm going to struggle pronouncing this guy's last name. It's spelled G-I-L-I-L-L-A-N-D, so Gilliland, Gilliland. Look, there's no way I'm going to be able to say that over and over again without fucking it up. So I'm just going to call him Jim Gilland, okay? Now, this Jim Gilland guy was heard bragging that if Albert and his son's bodies had to be found before someone could be convicted, then that conviction would be a long time coming. And when asked about Fountain's eight-year-old son, whose mother was Hispanic, Gilland replied that the kid was, quote, nothing but a half-breed, and to kill him was like killing a dog, end quote. So yeah, real nice guy. And by the way, as was the case with Oliver Lee, Both Jim Gilland and William McNew were also buddies with Albert Bacon Fall. What's more, some even suspected that Fall was the mastermind behind the whole thing, that he had enlisted Lee and the others to murder Fountain. Now, I know I kind of already touched on the fact that Fall and Fountain hated each other, and as far as I can tell, it does seem that this hatred stemmed solely from politics. Other than that, the two guys really weren't all that different. The Kentucky-born Albert Bacon Fall had, just like Fountain, spent time in Texas before moving to New Mexico. He was admitted to the bar in 1891, served in the Territorial Council and the New Mexico House of Representatives, and by 1893 was appointed as judge for the 3rd Judicial District, in addition to being an Associate Justice of New Mexico's Supreme Court. Later in life, he would switch parties, but at this time, Fall was a big driving force in New Mexico's Democratic Party, whereas Fountain was a Republican. Both of these guys were very outspoken, very opinionated, and very political. And we all know how politics can rot the brain. And just to show how deep the hatred went between the two Alberts, Fall began spreading rumors that Fountain had been caught in a, quote, compromising situation with one of his daughters, thus prompting him to orchestrate his own disappearance. Now, even though almost everybody suspected that Oliver Lee and his buddies were to blame, You can't exactly arrest anyone on hearsay, right? I mean, you can, but if you want a conviction in a court of law, you're going to need some hard evidence, which is what Pat Garrett was trying to uncover. Now, much to his annoyance, the governor enlisted the Pinkerton Detective Agency, who sent in operative John C. Frazier. Pat was initially hesitant to enlist the privatized help, but eventually had him go around and spread word that Oliver Lee, Gilland, and McNew were no longer suspects. I guess the idea was to create the illusion that they were in the clear, thus hoping that they'd let their guards down, much in the same way that Garrett did with Billy the Kid back many years before. And when Pat encountered Oliver Lee and company on the streets, he was cordial if not friendly, all still with this idea of throwing them off their game. The investigation would encounter a bit of a setback two months in, however, when Pat's partner, Charles Perry, ran off with several thousand dollars worth of Chavez County tax money. Really strange guy, this Perry. I need to look into him more, but his story is wild. He apparently plotted to murder John Wesley Hardin at one point, and then once he stole all that money, he was reported to have joined up with the outlaw Black Jack Ketchum, who, funny enough, was also considered a suspect in the death of Albert Jennings Fountain. Years later, numerous reports surfaced of Perry meeting his demise in Africa, either at the hands of Bantu tribesmen or killed by Boers while serving in the British Army or just being murdered over a gambling dispute in Johannesburg. It was his theft of all that money, by the way, that caused New Mexico to finally change the law and make it to where the collection of tax money was no longer the sheriff's responsibility. By August of 1896, with Fountain's disappearance remaining a mystery, Pat was appointed as sheriff of Dona Ana County, and by November was running for the election of the same post, with the daughter of Albert Jennings Fountain even making a speech on his behalf stating that only with Garrett as sheriff would her father and brother's murderers be brought to justice. The crowd was teary-eyed by the time she was done, and Pat, sure enough, won the election. As was the case years before in Lincoln, Garrett received a commission as a deputy U.S. Marshal, and although he continued to investigate the Fountain case, he made little to no headway. Part of this was due to Albert Bacon Fall's influence over certain courts and his expert manipulation of the legal system. Still, though, by the time March 1898 rolled around, it was suspected that Fall, along with Oliver Lee and the others, would be indicted. Shortly before this was to occur, Pat stopped at a saloon in Tularosa where Fall and Lee were playing poker, along with a guy named George Curry. They asked Garrett to join in, which he did, sitting opposite Lee. Hours passed as hand after hand of poker was played, and while other players routinely came and went from the table, Garrett and Lee continued to face each other both of them wary to turn their backs. I guess the reason being was that Lee was said to be a bad man with a gun, who had already killed in the past, and even participated in a range war. According to the aforementioned George Curry, this game lasted for three days. Now, I don't know about that, but by the time it was over, Garrett asked to speak with Oliver Lee in private, and he asked Curry to join them as a witness. Once behind closed doors, Pat asked Lee, why don't you like me? To which Lee replied, what the fuck are you talking about? I like you, Garrett replied. No, you don't. I see the little looks you give me. I've been trying to be your friend this whole time, and no matter what I do, you won't accept my friendship. What the fuck, bro? At this point, Lee's blushing. He's like, look, man, I like you. What do you want me to do? Kiss you? Garrett smiles and kind of looks off to the side, and then he looks back at Lee and says, well, I wouldn't stop you if you did. And per George Curry, quote, I witnessed Oliver Lee and Pat Garrett embrace and kiss a kiss that I have only seen lovers, madly in love, consummate, end quote. And no, I made all that shit up. Ah, uh, no, it actually happened. Once behind closed doors, Garrett asked Lee bluntly how he would like him, Pat, to serve the indictment that everybody knew was coming. Oliver informed Pat that he would have absolutely no trouble serving a warrant and assured him that he would not resist arrest. Well, to everyone's surprise, especially Garrett's, the grand jury did not issue any indictments whatsoever. Pat then angrily petitioned a judge to at least issue bench warrants for Lee, McNew, and Gilland and a new suspect, William Carr, who was accused of helping to trail the fountains for Lee and the others. Pat provided affidavits in support of this petition, and he was successful. Warrants in hand, Garrett wasted no time in arresting McNew and Carr, but Oliver, Lee, and Gilland wouldn't be so easy. Lee got word of the warrants and fled to El Paso sending word that if the court would promise a reasonable bell, he'd turn himself in. But if he was just meant to rot in jail indefinitely, nah, he'd pass. Despite this defiance, and despite being on the lam, Lee would soon return to one of his satellite ranches in New Mexico, about halfway between Alamogorda and Las Cruces. Garrett got wind and quickly raised a posse, arriving at Lee's spread at around 4.30 in the morning, spying both Lee and James Gillen's horses in the corral along with the horse of a guy named Print Road, Lee's future brother-in-law and someone we will be discussing later in regard to another mysterious death. And just as Pat had opted to do more than once in the past, rather than wait, he and his men kicked the door down and burst right into the ranch house, guns leveled. Turns out the inhabitants were just a couple of cowboys, along with their wives and young children, all of whom were terrified at this early morning intrusion. Garrett interrogated the two hands as to the location of his prey, but they claimed not to have any information. Finally, just at first light, Pat and the posse were milling about outside, and they noticed one of the cowboys motioning to somebody up on the roof. Looking closer, Garrett noticed that there was a ladder leaning against the house, and as it turns out, both Lee and Gilland had spread their bedrolls up there and spent the night, just to be on the safe side. Now some 50-odd feet away was a shed which Pat and several of his men climbed up on top of as posse member Ben Williams took up position behind a water tank. From the roof of that shed, they called out for the wanted men to surrender. And call it nerves or whatever. In the same breath they called out for him to surrender, one of the posse men let loose a round from his rifle. Predictably, chaos ensued with the rest of the posse opening up fire and Lee and Gillen doing the same. And effectively at that, Deputy H.K. Kearney took a bullet through the shoulder, followed by another in the leg as the lawmen found out just how bad of a disadvantage they had found themselves. Lee and Gillen were both crouched behind thick adobe, whereas the only thing separating Pat and his boys from those rifle rounds was sheet metal and thin wooden boards. Pat's face was soon peppered with splinters, and he narrowly dodged a bullet aimed for his head before slipping down to the ground and trying to pull Kearney to safety. The entire time, bullets just slapping all around him, and Lee yelling out that they were bastards for ordering a man to throw his hands up and firing at the same time. Oliver followed that up by telling Garrett that he had, quote, got yourself in a hell of a close place, to which Pat replied, I know it. Half-heartedly, Garrett tried to talk him into surrendering, but Lee knew he had the upper hand and refused. Besides, he had heard through the grapevine that Pat was planning on killing him before they got to the jailhouse. Garrett countered that that was not true, and that they'd be perfectly safe in his hands if only they would surrender. No dice. Instead, Oliver told Pat that if he and his posse would pull out and give he and Gilland a little distance, they would refrain from shooting as they left their cover and skedaddled. You ain't gonna shoot us in the back, are you? Pat asked. To which Gillan responded, "You know damn well we won't." And true to their word, the wanted men held their fire as Pat and the others looked at Kearney's wounds. The outlaws grew impatient, though, and ordered the posse to skin out. Kearney could lay where he was. And as embarrassing as I'm sure it was, Garrett did just that, leaving the wounded man behind as he and the rest of the men made their way back to town. Sadly, Kearney would die of his wounds two days later. Now, the following day, Oliver Lee hauled ass to a bank, withdrew all of his money, and lit out for the middle of nowhere. Just laying low. And when the Donna Anna Grand Jury did finally issue that indictment, Lee swore that he would never let Pat Garrett take him alive. Guess he was still mad about that posse opening up fire after telling him to surrender. As for Albert Bacon Fall, he was still not under indictment. Hell, when all this was going on, he became a captain in the New Mexico Volunteers bound for service in the Spanish-American War. Garrett tried to join as well, but the governor forbid it as long as Lee and Gilland were still on the lam. Now, earlier I mentioned an old boy named George Curry. He was at that poker game. He was a friend of Oliver Lee's. Well, Curry ran for and was elected as the sheriff over in Otero County. Lee then sent Curry a letter saying that he would surrender to him as long as Pat Garrett wasn't around and so long as he didn't have to spend not one minute in Garrett's Donna Anna Jill. Sheriff Curry agreed, as did a judge out of Las Cruces, and by mid-March 1899, both Lee and Gilland boarded a train bound for Las Cruces. What they didn't know was that Pat Garrett was on the same damn train. Hell, Pat didn't know it either. This was a surprise for all involved. Upon noticing the sheriff, both outlaws laid low, slinking in their seats and holding up newspapers over their faces as Garrett was none the wiser until the train arrived at its destination. That friendly judge was waiting at the depot, so Lee and Gillen both ran off and into his protection, and that was that. It's reported that once Garrett learned that they had just been within his grasp, he was, quote, considerably chagrined, end quote. I think that's the fancy talk for being pissed off. And guess who the defense attorney was? None other than the man who some think ordered the dastardly deed in question, Albert B. Fall. The Spanish-American War only lasted like five seconds, and he and his volunteers never even left the country. Fall arrived back in New Mexico just in time to head up the defense team. And the lead prosecutor was crooked-ass Thomas Catron one-time honcho of the infamous Santa Fe ring. Now, this trial made national headlines, but in the end, the jury delivered a verdict of not guilty. Much of the evidence was circumstantial, and Albert Fall did one hell of a job discrediting the witness testimony. Plus, the whole thing became extremely political, with the Democrats and Republicans using this as an opportunity to bash each other rather than attempting to seek justice for Fountain and his little boy. Guess some things never change, huh? Nobody would ever again stand trial for the disappearance of Albert Jennings Fountain or his son, Henry. And to this day, nobody truly knows what happened. If Fountain and Henry were murdered, as most assume is the case, we still don't know for sure who did it or why. I mean, some even think that the outlaw Black Jack Ketchum was involved. His brother Sam Ketchum claimed that Jack confessed to it, but at this point in our timeline, Blackjack was already dead himself, so who knows? That detective from the Pinkertons, John Fraser, seemed pretty confident that it all led back to Oliver Lee, and in the eyes of many, Lee still remains the most likely suspect. Supposedly Jim Gilland, in his later years, confessed that the bodies were buried on his ranch, and even gave a friend of his a Masonic pin that he took off a fountain, a pin that the Fountain family said did indeed belong to Albert. But as of yet, no bodies have been located, at least not that I'm aware of. I think I did read something in regard to some charred remains that were found, but A, I'm not sure how true this is, and B, if it is true, I don't know that anyone has ever proved it was Albert and his boy. And despite Oliver Lee probably being a murderer, he would go on to be elected several times as both a New Mexico state representative and senator. Lee lived all the way till 1941 and even has a damn park named after him, the Oliver Lee Memorial State Park. As far as Albert Bacon Fall. There's no proof that he ordered or otherwise orchestrated Fountain's demise. And even those that are pretty convinced that Oliver Lee was the killer aren't so positive that Fall was involved. If anything, he was just guilty of being an asshole. Now, he would go on to serve time in prison, but it would be over a completely different crime, one that I'm positive you heard about back in history class. For now, though, Fall would still remain a part of Pat Garrett's life, and in a pretty surprising way. But that'll have to wait until next week. Just one more installment left in this series on Pat Garrett. And boy, oh boy, is it going to be a doozy. We're going to discuss Pat's further descent into debt and the circumstances surrounding his own very mysterious murder. And yeah, we're going to talk about aliens, all right? Thank you so much for listening. Big shout out to everybody who's joined the party over there at Into History. That next episode I just teased, the final installment of the Pat Garrett series, is already available over there at Into History if you can't wait. That's IntoHistory.com. Also, the book club is in full swing, so come on over and get involved. If you get a chance, go to WildWestExtra.com, hit that contact button, let me know what's on your mind. Until next week, try not to commit a double murder and then dispose of the bodies and then go on to have a damn park named after you like nothing happened. Try not to gamble away all your money either. And if you have to get into a gunfight, make sure you have more protection than sheet metal and plywood. Adios. guilty of being an asshole.